Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us here again on the Freed Thinker Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On today's episode, we will be continuing my review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, and we'll be looking at his chapter entitled Minor Contradictions. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to find me on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash group slash the Freed Thinker Podcast. Or you can join me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen, www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Now, I'm still having some technical difficulties with iTunes, so please, if anyone knows how to get the show to appear in the search function again, it would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that, on with today's episode. Minor Contradictions The first sentence of this chapter should have been in a 24-point, bold, double-underlined, italicized, and highlighted font. This is not because it was deeply profound or even very introductory, but because it serves as a warning that should send off flares and red flags to any even halfway informed reader. McAfee opens the chapter by saying here, quote, here I will simply create a list of contradictions within the text of the Holy Bible, end quote, page 65. We should be worried about the simply. What a loaded word. One should view the objectivity of McAfee at this point with the same suspicion that one would the person who declares their editorials to be a, quote, no-spin zone, end quote. That kind of rhetoric cautions us that it will likely be an only-spin zone. Here, McAfee again reminds us that he will be drawing primarily from the King James Version, and that he will be showing the incongruities of a, quote, literal interpretation, which, as we showed before, should send our already heightened misgivings about his objectivity through the proverbial roof. When, in the next clause, he encourages us that no matter what version we use, the meaning will be the same, it forces me to wonder why then he would choose to use only the oldest and most textually insecure and unlike modern English in both grammar and lexicology versions available to us today. Footnote. As stated previously, this is actually not a knock against the KJV, since for its time it was a good it was quite a good version, though the Geneva Bible in the same generation was exceedingly superior. What I mean is that when dealing with textual issues, there are versions available to us today that are significantly improved, both in its use of modern English grammar and word meaning, which convey the text more accurately to modern readers as well as reliant on drastically better manuscript evidence than what that was simply undiscovered when the KJV was produced. Furthermore, when he encourages us to read any version of the Bible, I wonder if he is aware that even a simple knowledge of the original languages will usually defeat the assumptions of his arguments and thus render the objections that are built on them totally invalid. This is because many objections that are made against the Bible only make sense because of the structures particular to a particular English translation. So when we read the original languages, 
it is not just that these problems are lessened, but actually are more often than not simply non-existent. So, would he encourage us to deal primarily with the original text rather than any other text? Footnote, I have noticed in my discussions with skeptics that when I point this fact out, they mock that it takes an intimate knowledge of Koine Greek or ancient Hebrew to be able to understand the verses, as if they think study is a bad thing. The problem, however, is that while the general meaning of the text might be clear in the English, often the objections are about the fineries of English grammar, syntax, or range of lexical meaning in the English word that is not implied by the word it translates in the original languages. Again, the Bible stands or falls not on how well we translate it into English, but on what the original authors would have meant when they wrote it. We will see here that this list really is more simplistic than simple. Does God tempt man? Here McAfee points to Genesis 22.1 where God is said to have tested Abraham and James 1.13 where James says that God does not tempt anyone. A simple lexicographical search would have revealed that the Greek word apistor, sorry, apirastos and the verb apirazo is used in James 1.13, and its Hebrew equivalent, nasa, used in Genesis 22.1, carry the meaning of to try, to prove, as well as to tempt, and thus can refer to two related but different kinds of actions. A temptation is a situation meant to cause someone to fail. Failure is the desired outcome. A test is a proving ground meant to evaluate or even to cause someone to succeed and grow. The intentions behind the two is diametrically different, and thus the, action, the actions themselves are different. What McAfee calls a solid contradiction turns out to be nothing more than a badly informed oversight of meaning due to a lack of any reference to, to or study of the original words of the passages. Is God angry forever? For this objection, McAfee commits a kind of category error. Here he attempts to pit Jeremiah 3.12, a promise to Israel that God will not be angry with them forever, and Jeremiah 17.4, a statement that God's anger over sin has been kindled and will burn forever, against each other. In doing so, he reveals again that where anti-theistic zeal is concerned, almost anything will pass for justification. McAfee seems gleefully unaware, or totally unconcerned, with the fact that he is comparing apples and oranges. In the first passage, God is calling Israel to repent of their sin and turn back to him, and promises that his anger will not burn against them forever if they do. In the second passage, God is referring to those who do not turn back to him, and how his anger against sin will never end. That God will never one day say, yeah, that whole sin thing... I don't really care about that anymore. Thus the context reveal that what is being addressed are two totally different situations. One addresses God's forgiveness of persons, the other God's holy hatred of sin. They are simply not even talking about the same things and thus cannot be contradictions. Can man see God? This objection is based on the concept of a vision and seeks to show that where the Bible says that, quote, no one has ever seen God, end quote, John 1.18, 
that it contradicts itself by showing that some people have in fact seen God, such as Jacob at Peniel, which actually does mean I have seen God, and when God passed by Moses on the cliff in Exodus 33:23. Here McAfee again makes hard and fast woodenly literal uses of words and allows for no nuances or varied meanings. What John is referring to is the total lack of any human on earth standing in the presence of God, sitting on the throne, and coming back to tell about it. His point was that only Jesus has ever done that very thing. So what of these visions of God elsewhere? Even John in Revelation sees God seated on the throne of heaven and writes a whole book about it. So has McAfee hit a home run on this objection? Not quite. What is quite obvious is that such experiences are manifestations of God. For an omnipresent and spiritual being cannot really be fully seen here on earth. In fact, we use the word see in precisely the same way all the time in English. We can say, I see what you mean. But do we actually see with our eyes the meaning of the invisible words? We can say, I see President Obama when watching television. But do I actually see President Obama or just a manifestation of him on my television? Or we say, I see what I need to do now. But do we actually mean that we have become psychic and can visually see what we will be doing in the following days? And even then, not just a vision of it, but the actual events of the future. We in fact see, pun intended, this in the very passages given about Jacob and Moses. Does Jacob see the omnipresent God as God? No. What does he see? He see? What he does see is a manifestation of God as a man, with whom he wrestles and loses. And what about Moses? In the context, if McAfee had taken the time to actually read the surrounding contexts, God expressly tells Moses that he cannot see God specifically his face, which in the Hebrew world often meant something akin to personal presence, and that Moses must hide in the cliffs and once a manifestation of God's glory, not even God himself, has passed by, Moses will be allowed to peer out and see the dissipating shadow of the passing glory of the manifestation of God. The passage itself makes it abundantly clear through this triple level of distancing that Moses did not see God at all. Thus, even the selections cited by McAfee militate against his own argument. Who was Joseph's father? In Matthew 1.16, we read that Joseph's father was Jacob, but in Luke 3.23, we read that his father was Eli. But note, Eli can also be rendered Heli, depending on the preferred translation from Greek to English. This is one of the rare places that McAfee seems aware that there is at least one argument that explains this problem from the Christian perspective, although even there he does not really represent it. McAfee states, quote, Many Christians argue that the term begat, used in Matthew 1.16, can refer to a grandfather as opposed to a father, end quote, page 69. But as we'll see in a moment, that is not actually the argument. However, even with his poorly summarized acknowledgement, he still refrains from actually engaging with it. He just states it and dismisses it without any substantive comment as to why. 
Scholars have also noted that there are actually two compelling reasons that can be given for this discrepancy. More can be given, but I think that these two are enough to prove the case. The first option is that the term beget, genao, in the Greek, can be used to refer to the descent of a person from their father, their grandfather, or really even any male from any generation past. McAfee rejects this by saying that beget is often used in scripture as a synonym for father, page 69. While it is true that it can refer to fatherhood, the fact that it often means this does not mean that it always means this. In fact, that genealogies will frequently commit what is called telescoping, a feature of a genealogy where the writer compresses the genealogies by skipping several generations, reveals that this option is entirely viable. What actually bolsters the case for this option, which McAfee seems to have entirely missed, is that Ganao is used in Matthew 1.13, but not in Luke 3.23. This means that even if Ganao should be rendered fathered, it simply does not apply to Luke 3.23, which dissolves the contradiction. Even if Matthew 1.13 refers to the fact that Jacob fathered Joseph, we still see that Luke 3.23 merely says that Joseph was the son of Eli. Nothing about begetting. This is where McAfee has missed the common Christian response. It is not that beget can mean something more than direct fatherhood, which it can, but that Matthew says begot, whereas Luke says son of, which was an extremely common phrase to indicate by praise to indicate biological sons, sons-in-laws, adopted children, grandsons, future descendants, disciples of a rabbi, etc., or even someone that shares a likeness. Or does McAfee think that James and Johns were biologically sons of thunder? Moreover, while our English versions, presumably for grammatical clarity, insert son of, in reference to Joseph and Eli, in the Greek, there is no such clause. Luke 3.23 tells us that Jesus was 30 30 years old when he started his ministry, being, quote, now this is Matthew, quote, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. The problem is clear when we realize that rather than following our English translation, the original Greek is actually Joseph to Eli, and thus the verse ought to be rendered more literally as Joseph or, excuse me, quote, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, Joseph of Heli, end quote. The Greek of Luke's text does not say that Joseph was the son of Eli at all, in fact. So even if McAfee's objection works for Matthew 1.13, which it manifestly does not, It seemingly has nothing to do with Luke 3.23 and definitely cannot be used to show a contradiction between the two passages. We notice that Joseph's lineage from Eli is likely being compared to Jesus' lineage to Joseph, which Luke did not even presume to be genetic. When we remember that Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph, but an adopted son, then the comparison between Joseph and his father-in-law becomes more obvious. This point will be important to the next option, which I think is superior to this one. Matthew begins his genealogy with the patriarch Abraham and works his way forward to Jesus. 
Luke begins with Jesus and works his way backward to Adam. These are two distinct genealogies with two distinct purposes. Matthew appears to give the genealogy of Joseph, and Luke represents the genealogy of Mary. Matthew, pinning the gospel with the Jews in mind, sets out to establish Jesus' qualification to the Messiah through Joseph's genealogy. Thus, beginning with Abraham, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy through David and the kings which followed. He presents Jesus' royal lineage through the males, through, quote, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of, uh, of whom was born Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, writes to Gentiles with a view toward the humanity of Christ. The concept of, of one being both God and man would seem strange and foreign to those accustomed to Greek and Roman gods. Therefore, Luke begins at Jesus and follows the genealogy of Mary passing through the patriarchs, ending with the very first man, Adam. If Luke was tracing the, ge tracing the genealogy of Mary, why does he cite Joseph's name? Today, it would be politically incorrect to map a woman's genealogy through her husband. However, in Luke's day, it was proper and correct. That is, this is how genealogies were done at the time. Luke follows Mary's genealogy, beginning with the name Joseph, her husband, Eli's son-in-law, in legal terms, his son by marriage. As we saw above, this is entirely consistent even with the fact that Jesus is called the supposed son of Joseph, or more literally, Joseph of Eli. Here we see that Joseph is just as much a son of Eli as Jesus is of Joseph. How much is that? Well, considering that Jesus was only the legal son of Joseph, then here Luke seems to be clearly showing that Joseph is only the legal son of Eli, a son-in-law by marriage to Mary. We see once again that when we look at the original historical and literary context, that this objection dissolves as a house of cards built on unfounded assumptions. The prophecy foretold that the Messiah would be named Emmanuel. This is quite honestly one of the sillier objections that McAfee has stated thus far in his book. He attempts to say that the prophecy from Isaiah 7.14 was not fulfilled in Jesus, because he was not named Emmanuel. I almost considered not responding because I did not want to dignify such an asinine statement with a response, but in the name of full disclosure, I feel compelled to do so. We see in Isaiah 8.3 that, that the same child is also called Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil seeds, the prey hastens. Then again in 8.8, .8, he will be called Emmanuel. And again in 8.6, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In fact, the very section in which the Emmanuel title is drawn from also has the child being called a handful of other titles. Is this because the Bible thinks that the child will be named all of these? Not at all. A simple reading and use of even a modicum of reason which show us that the child's actual name is not in view, but rather what he will be called. That is, how people will view him and speak about him. So the child need not have Emmanuel on his birth certificate, but rather be called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. 
something that Christians have done from the very beginning of the church and is at the core of Christian Christology, that Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Does Jesus bring peace or a sword? For this objection, McAfee again seems to think that all language is created grammatically equal. Here he cites Matthew 10:34, which reads, quote, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but the sword. And John 16:33, which reads, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Here, in fact, McAfee does not actually even pit these two verses against the verses together, but rather the concept of nonviolence and Jesus' statement that he would not bring the sword. Several things can be said about this so-called dilemma. First is that a massive misconception here is obvious from the fact that McAfee seems to insinuate that Jesus was advocating the expansion of his kingdom by the clash of the sword, when in fact we have Jesus being arrested and strictly forbidding his disciples from using a sword. He even performs a miracle to undo what Peter's sword had done. So to say that Jesus was advocating such a position of evangel evangelism by violence is sheer nonsense. Second, and more to the point, is that McAfee again has shown that he can be quite heavy-handed in his treatment of biblical passages, often ignoring the very passage in which a verse is found and forcing an extremely wooden literalism that we never really find in any language. Matthew 10 as a whole passage is a warning and exhortation to the disciples that God will care for them even during times of immense persecution and that the disciples should not take up arms but rather trust in God to welcome people into their homes to give cold water to the thirsty. They should not be surprised when the gospel, gospel disrupts families and households. Some in the house will believe, some will not believe. But a true disciple of Jesus will learn to trust God and love God more than family. Footnote. This view is regularly mocked by anti-theists. They see a kind of irony in the Christian being so pro-family, but also saying we should love God more than we love our families. The point is not that we should love our families less, but rather we should keep God as the highest priority. It is a belief about the importance of God, not the unimportance of families. That McAfee seems unwilling or unable to realize that while not all scripture can be reduced to symbolism, there are many cases where idioms and rhetorical devices are being used. This seems to be an obvious case. When a preacher of nonviolence uses the image of a sword, it is a good bet to assume that a literal sword of violence is not meant. This position is supported by the fact that the Bible itself commonly referred to as the, so, uh, as the sword of truth or the sword of the spirit, such as Galatians 6.17. The fact that the Bible is called a sword should tell us that the Bible is to be the only weapon for Christians instead of actual swords. In fact, the warfare language of the, spirit, of the spiritual disciplines is so interesting precisely because of the minimizing effect that it has in mind of the real bloodshedding warfare. Is it any surprise that in John's revelation that when Jesus is seen coming from, 
coming as the conquering king in Revelation 19, he does not come bearing a sword, but that the sword protrudes from Jesus' mouth, a clear symbol of his words. This would be a strange picture indeed if we did not understand that Jesus conquers the world through his words rather than through swords and armies. God decrees that Adam will die upon consumption of the fruit. McAfee presents this objection as something like unfulfilled prophecy. God tells Adam in Genesis 3, quote, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This objection is not new. In fact, it was the first temptation, one stated by a serpent. It was part of the original temptation of Satan to Eve, quote, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Genesis 3-4 Here McAfee explicitly states the same objection. In pitting the word of God that Adam and Eve would surely die the day they ate of the fruit, with the fact that they did not immediately die, he shows again that he is unable to handle the text in anything but the broadest and clumsiest strokes. As we saw before concerning the Hebrew word for day, yom, it does not always mean a literal 24-hour day time frame. It can easily mean large swaths of time, and in fact, in their due course, Adam and Eve actually did die as a result of their sins. This reading seems eminently more likely than McAfee's overly literal one, in the same objection, McAfee reiterates what has been one of the thematic problems of his book thus far, the use of loaded statements. He says, quote, Taken literally, Genesis 2.17 indicates that God himself lied to Adam and Eve. End quote. Page 72. If I were to say to you, Thanks for raining on my parade, what would the literal meaning of the phrase be? Would you think that if I really did have a parade, and you really did cause to rain and pour down onto it, and that I was in fact thankful about it, or that I would be somehow lying to you? I highly doubt it. The real literal meaning is that I'm being sarcastic and that you had some that you had somehow said or done something that took the excitement out of something that I was doing or feeling. Because this is a common idiom in English, I chose it to illustrate that a literal, literally true meaning of a statement does not require a kind of wooden literalism. The failure to understand this and to see that Christians do not use the term literal in this wooden manner will continue to be a constant problem that plagues all future writing on this subject by McAfee. Does God change his mind? Repent. Since McAfee has made this exact same argument, and we have addressed this above by showing that all language about God is necessarily analogical and can be quite anthropomorphic, and that God can even use illocutionary language in expressing his plan and purpose, I will skip past this objection at this point. How many animals were saved by Noah? Here again, we find such a flimsy objection that one wonders why it was even included. If this made it into the book, the mind reels with wonder about the kinds of arguments McAfee thought too shallow to leave out. 
McAfee looks at two verses where Noah is commanded by God to take different numbers of animals into the ark with him. In one verse, God tells Noah to take two of every animal in with him. In the other, Noah is commanded to take seven of the clean animals with him. Presumably, he would need extras of the clean animals for food and sacrifices, since neither could be done with unclean animals. Besides that it, it takes almost active irrationality to arrive at the conclusion that these are contradictory, it is extremely simple to see that Noah is actually able to follow both. So we should ask McAfee if he could carry out contradictory commands or if he would be able if he would only be able to carry out complementary ones. The fact that Noah can carry out both shows that they are not contradictory. To see how we could carry out both, we need to only think of a simple analogy. Imagine I sent you to the farmer's market and I told you to get me two of everything, but also to get me seven of each of the cheeses. Would you say to me, that's impossible, that's a contradictory command? <laughs> Not at all. You, you would go to the farmer's market and buy me two of everything and then buy five extra, in addition to the original two, of each of the cheeses. That McAfee seems to think that this is some kind of contradiction, riddled narrative, is beyond comprehensible. God's flood did not destroy the giants. For this objection, McAfee again performs his normal MO to make false assumption, lapses of information and reason, and employs a inability to consider other options available as answers. In this argument, which actually turns into, into a smattering of unconnected thoughts, McAfee begins by citing Genesis 6-4 that the Nephilim lived on the earth, then Genesis 7:21 that all living creatures not aboard Noah's ark perished, and finally Numbers 13:33 that says during the mission to survey the promised land, giants were noted among the inhabitants. There's a footnote 71. Nephilim is commonly, though probably not accurately, translated as giants. Many scholars have noted the difficulty of knowing what the word even means and could refer simply to a kind of rebellious people. My first thought on this is that McAfee seems to miss that at a bare minimum, more than a thousand years had passed between the flood and the survey, drastically more if one takes a non-literalistic view of the prehistory in Genesis 1-11, through in which time Nephilim could have easily reemerged as a branch of humanity, to ignore this as a colossal oversight on his part. The second response to this objection is that the narrative in which the giants are found in Numbers is a section where the spies are known to be severely overstating the case for the impregnability of Canaan by the Jews after leaving Egypt. The fact that they gave the report that there were people like giants does not mean that there actually were giants, only that they seemed impossible to conquer. The observation that hyperbole is also used when the spies stated, quote, we became like grasshoppers, end quote, seems to support this view concerning exaggeration. In addition to this, and, and as stated above, the, in these passages, the, quote, giants are not even called giants, but Nephilim, which is not only extremely hard to translate, but even harder to interpret what is actually meant by it. 
To make an entire objection rely on the 1611 King James translation of an ambiguous Hebrew word with an even more indefinite referent seems negligent at best. Within this objection, McAfee also goes on quite a little tangent. At this point, he tries to state that taking two of every living creature on the ark would be a logistical nightmare, which it would, not just for space, but would also result in utter carnage. We're not in heaven. The lions would not have laid down with the lambs. Yet this response seems totally unnecessary. First of all, the ark was not to carry two of every animal, but two of every kind or family of animal. To make this number even smaller, many scholars have made compelling arguments that the flood was not global, but was local to the area. The word translated as world, ha'aretz, in the flood narrative more often just means land or ground. In fact, the view that the passage refers to a global flood has become the minority view of biblical scholars. Not only would this mean that all humanity di- that not all humanity died during the flood, but also that Noah would only have had to care for two of each kind of animal local to Palestine. That is a radically smaller number. Second, and I admit that this would not be compelling to such an ardent anti-theist, but logically it is helpful is that since this question is asking about the feasibility of the ark, if it actually happened how the Bible said it did, then it also stated that God was the one who commanded the building of the ark and was able to flood the world as promised and keep the ark safe as promised and bring all the animals in as promised. Then could that God not also keep Fido from eating Fifi? Finally, I wonder if McAfee avoids zoos for the fear that pandemonium could break out at any moment. Multi-species locations are quite frequent. With the right barriers and procedures, why should the ark end in carnage? Does McAfee picture the Sunday school flannel graph with all the happy animals peeking over the railing of the ark, waving to the children with the bright sun wearing sunglasses shining in the background? Why must we assume that the animals, especially the predatory ones, would not have been totally sectioned off from from each other and the rest of the general animal population? Can man be righteous? The answer to this question is actually quite simple. No, none can be righteous. The passage cited by McAfee in Romans 3.10-23 is quite right. None are righteous, no, not one. So why are there passages that seem to indicate that man can be righteous before God? Here McAfee has really revealed his complete lack of research and abysmal understanding of the Christian religion and doctrines. I'm almost at a loss to know where to start because a vast amount of just basic information is clearly missing from McAfee's understanding on this. How do you explain the orbit of the moon to a person who thinks they are an orange? So let me briefly answer. First, the Bible has made it clear that none are righteous on their own standing. Christians are righteous not because we are better than anyone else in our own rights, but only because we have the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to us by God. Lot was righteous on account of Abraham's intercession for him. Abraham was righteous because God's own election of him and on and on. So people are only righteous because God has imputed his own righteousness to them. Footnote. 
in Genesis 15, 17 through 18, we see that in God's covenant with Abraham, God actually caused Abraham to become paralyzed for a brief time so that only God could proceed in the covenant-making ceremony. But this was not to bind Abraham, but to free him. For God entered in as both parties. That is, that God stood in Abraham's place so that even if Abraham sinned, he would not violate the covenant of God, which would eternally keep the covenant in good standing. Thus, Abraham is righteous only because God stood in Abraham's place. Secondly, righteous is actually a legal term where someone is declared righteous, literally, in right standing. We use the term when we refer to a righteous kill made by a policeman. This term describes a legal killing, often out of necessity to protect oneself or others. In English, because of its melting pot nature of many languages, the word righteous cannot be made to a verb, like to righteousify. And so we have a different principal part, just, as in to justify, which means we have two words that mean approximately the same thing. However, in Biblical Greek, there is only one word, dikaiao, which can carry the concepts of both legal and moral senses. Thus, even though we may say that Romans 3.10, that no one is righteous, moral, we can also say with Romans 4.5 that Abraham was righteous, justified, by his faith. Finally, we see that the differing uses of the terms in Paul and James help to illustrate this point. In Romans, Paul says that we are justified by God through faith, not by works. James says that we are justified by faith with works and that faith without works is dead. Is that a contradiction? Not at all. We in fact use the word justify in the exact same two ways. Paul was speaking of legal standing before God. That is, before God, our good works cannot compensate for our violation of the law. We cannot be so good that our good outweighs our evil and compels God to forgive us on our own merits. We cannot forensically justify ourselves. That is, we cannot make ourselves legally innocent. We can think of the case of w in which Mother Teresa commits murder. This is purely hypothetical and not meant to be any slander on her. Should we think that her lifetime of service to the poor should outweigh her one murder? Should the court be compelled to declare her innocent? In the same way, no good work we do can compensate for the due penalty for our sin. For James, however, Justification is not used in the forensic sense, but rather in the same sense as the concept wisdom is justified by her children. That is, it is shown to be wise by its fruits. James' point was that if a Christian is going to claim to be a follower of Jesus, his faith is only justified, shown to be real, by its fruits. Interestingly, this is one of the texts commonly used to show that those who commit crimes in the name of Jesus are actually not justifying their faith in Jesus because they have violated it with their works. What they are justifying or proving is that they are likely unregenerate, selfish, and vainly ambitious and should not be considered in any way representative of the normal Christian life or of Christianity as a whole. Due to these factors, we can see that this objection, which consists of only two brief sentences, is nothing more than a superficial and entirely puerile handing of the biblical texts. 
Does God deliver commandments unto Moses through a mediator? Sometimes theists stand accused as people who are wholly incapable of admitting when they are wrong. Well, I will go on the record and fully apologize because I was wrong. I had said previously that one of McAfee's arguments was the weakest of the entire book. I was wrong. I actually think that this may be the weakest of the entire book, though maybe one in the final chapter will prove me wrong yet again. Whoever said I'm not open to being wrong. In this objection, McAfee pits two verses against each other. Exodus 20, the first giving of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, and Galatians 3.19-20, which reads, quote, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. End quote. ES, ESV intermediary in the ESV stands in for mediator in other translations. Here McAfee states, quote, This contradiction has been studied extensively by biblical historians and remains a mystery. Because of the mismatched accounts, it is left open to interpret whether or not Moses actually heard God's voice in the delivery of the Ten Commandments. End quote. Page 79. For those interested, please look up the Galatians passage and read it for yourself. This objection becomes so obviously false on even the most cursory reading that I doubt McAfee himself even buys it. Although, let us treat this as McAfee actually believes it, which I highly doubt. First of all, let us place the Galatians text in context. Paul had been talking about the covenant made directly with Abraham and has now moved to the comparison of covenants of grace and faith with covenants of law and works and has brought up the law, commonly called the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we will assume that McAfee has never done a page of research since to even read a tiny portion of scholarship on this passage would have kept him from putting it in print and point out that the Mosaic Law was not a covenant with Moses, but rather was a covenant with Israel through the mediation of Moses. So who was the mediator which Paul was talking about? Moses. So did God deliver the commandment to Moses, or did he deliver them through Israel through a mediator? Yes. Moses received the commandments as the mediator between God and Israel. Second is that when McAfee attempts to cast this passage as some kind of mystery, he's actually right. There is quite a bit of debate about this passage. While it is not the most difficult passage in the New Testament, let alone the Bible, some have said that the next the next to Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God verse, this is possibly the most difficult passage in Galatians. However, what McAfee is wrong about, and if he would have actually read any commentaries on the passage, he would have been quickly become aware of the fact, is that the controversy is not who the mediator of the law was. The controversy is actually about the role that God and Christ play and the relationship between covenants of faith and grace and covenants of law and works. 
it literally has absolutely nothing to do with who the mediator was or how many there were or any nonsense like that. So McAfee actually is either deceived or deceitful about what the problem of this passage really is and the kind of, quote, research he has done on the passage. I wonder who these so-called, quote, biblical historians are that he has in mind. Sadly, not a footnote is in sight to corroborate his assertions. One wonders how McAfee can even begin to, to think that he is justified in stating, quote, We can certainly say, however, that these passages cannot be reconciled, and the Bible therefore must be fictional to some extent, and cannot be in any way considered infallible, as many fundamentalist Christians would argue, end quote, page 79 through 80. We most certainly cannot say anything of the sort from this objection. Unfortunately, McAfee did not cite any sources, so we cannot even check his supposed research on the supposed scholars who are debating this issue. Is God all-powerful? For this objection, McAfee tackles the common problem of God's omnipotence, that is, is God all-powerful? He makes two arguments against the position that God is almighty. The first, of a juxtaposition of two biblical passages, the other is an appeal to a common philosophical conundrum. The passage he cites are Revelation 19.6, quote, Hallelujah, for the Lord Almighty reigns, end quote, and Judges 1.19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. He asked the question, though not in such brevity as I will summarize it here, if God is all-powerful, why could he not cause the people to prevail? As usual, the answer is actually found in the context of the passage itself. Already, so soon into the conquest of the Promised Land, Israel had already defaulted on their end with the of the covenant with God. They had failed to worship God alone, and had failed to drive out the inhabitants of the previous regions but rather let them stay and establish their own settlements just outside of town. So when we reached 119 about the conquest of the land given to the tribe of Judah, we find that they have already abandoned God and thus were on their own for the conquest. In fact, some scholars point out that the passage need not be translated that they could not drive out the inhabitants, but rather that they would not drive out the inhabitants. That is, that it was not the strength of the iron chariots that subdued the Israelite, but it was the glitter of the appeal of the iron chariots. They, they were seduced by the wealth and engineering of the chariots and therefore abandoned God for material gain. In fact, in the beginning of the very next chapter, we find the biblical author's own answer to McAfee's question, which makes one wonder if he read the whole narrative or if he just read some anti-theistic blog where this supposed contradiction was cited without context. Later in Judges 2, 1-3, we read God saying the following to Israel in reference to why they failed to win the land. Quote, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars... But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, 
but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. End quote. God himself said in effect, not that he could not help him, them, but he would not help them because of their sin. Quite the interesting statement, since this is precisely what we say about the Israelites' ability to remove the Canaanites. Not that they could not, but that they would not. God basically said in response, I will give you what you want. It is God rather than man who ultimately says, not mine, but thy will be done. The next part of the subjection is again quite juvenile. It's the classic question, can God create a rock an, or an object so heavy that he cannot lift? While almost all philosophers for centuries have pointed out the absurdity of the question, even if they do not believe in God, McAfee seems to think that it's still valid. So let me just quickly sum up two related reasons why this question is actually a nonsense question. First, is that it is asking for God to create a logical contradiction. That is, if God created a rock, a finite thing, the question demands that God create an infinite rock. This would make the rock a finite infinite. This is what we call a logically nonsensical statement. We have pointed to others previously, like a square circle, a married bachelor, or a self-created universe, a non-existent existence. So the question demands the creation of a nonsense concept. The second point that flows from this is that no Christian says that God is omnipotent in the sense that God can do literally anything. The Christian concept of omnipotence is that God can do any logically possible thing, thus keeping with his own perfect and super-rational nature. Because God is himself the basis for reason, and because God will not do anything contrary to his nature, the essential nature known as immutability, God therefore cannot create a logically nonsensical entity. To do so would for God, would for God to cease to be God. When Christians say that God is all-powerful only over logically possible things, many atheists object that Christians are trying to wriggle out of some logical dilemma. I understand that they may feel that they are being duped. However, limiting omnipotence to logical possibility is actually in favor of the atheist. Imagine that the Christian doctrine of omnipotence was that God could do all possible or all things without even the boundaries of logical possibility. What possible charge could the atheist ever hope to bring against theism? If God could make true contradictions, such as a square circle, or a married bachelor, or a finite infinite rock, then the atheist would have no hope of ever finding anything false in Christianity. What would it matter if they could prove a contradiction to obtain? Could God... God could make true contradictions, and thus that could be a true contradiction. When Christians limit God's omnipotence to logical possibility, the atheist should see that it makes theism open to falsifiability and welcome it with open arms. Yet, if God is only capable of bringing about logically possible realities, then the answer to the question of the finite infinite rock is no. No, God cannot make a rock like that, in the same way that he cannot make a square circle or a married bachelor. Simple indeed. At the close of this chapter, McAfee tries to get in one final jab that does not fall under any of the previous headings. Here has the, he has the whole Bible in mind. He states, quote, 
we are left with written works and practices that have been altered substantially from their original state of thousands of years and totally consist of various stories and moral teachings that often contradict each other. End quote, page 81 to 82. Here, one can only imagine that McAfee has in mind the notion that the Bible is the product of a, of a kind of ancient version of the telephone game and has undergone massive alterations through time, thus rendering the current state of the manuscript evidence for the Bible in total disrepair. This, however, is wildly overstated as textual critics of nearly all theological conviction or otherwise agree that the biblical manuscripts that we have are upwards of 96 to 99.9 percent accurate to the original autographs and are getting better every day with every new manuscript discovery while discussing this would like in other places make this review dozens of more pages in length Suffice it to say that anyone familiar with the textual evidence for the accuracy of the transmission process of the Bible will no doubt find the Kool-Aid pill that McAfee is shoving down our throats impossible to swallow. Footnotes. A prime example is that of the Isaiah scroll found in Qumran dated in at between 335 and 107 BCE. Prior to the dead, this Dead Sea Scroll discovery, the earliest manuscript of Isaiah was dated around 1000 CE. This means that we jumped back between 1100 and 1300 years. But did researchers find massive discrepancies, alterations, additions, or omissions? Not in the slightest. What they did find was that over 1100 to 1300 years of transmission, the text was over 95% accurate and that the 5% was made up almost exclusively of errors related to grammar, spelling, word order, which does not matter in biblical languages like it does in English, and are all quite obvious during an initial reading. There seems to be no examples of any substantive alterations to the text, either intentionally or other not otherwise. For more books on this type of issue, go back and see footnote one at the very beginning. Well, that's about all the time we have for today, but keep your eyes peeled because the next five episodes or so will be a series of discussions between Nicholas Brusesi from the Skeptic's Testament, me, and our friend Brandon Christian. The topic of the shows will be moral philosophy, and each of us will have an episode dedicated to our moral philosophy where we will present our positions and then have a discussion following. There is even going to be a final episode dealing with listener questions, so please have a pen and paper ready while you listen. This should be an extremely interesting series of discussions aired here as well as on the Skeptic's Testament, and we hope that it will be benefit for all our listeners. Again, if you have any questions or comments about the show today or any of the previous shows or the future shows that you're going to listen to, feel free to stop by our Facebook page. It's www.facebook.com slash group slash the Freed Thinker Podcast or visit me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget that hyphen www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Well, I hope to see you again soon. Have a great day and come back and see us again here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. Goodbye, everybody.